chapter 6, continuing our study here through the book of Hebrews. And you've heard me mention this the last few weeks, how much I absolutely love the book of Hebrews. Just the logical flow of this and how it just starts out so simple, so straightforward, a quick review. Hebrews 1, Jesus is greater than the angels because he created the angels. In Hebrews chapter 3, Jesus is greater than Moses because Jesus created the tabernacle where Moses served at. So Moses was a servant to Christ there. Hebrews chapter 4, Jesus is greater than Joshua. Joshua took Israel into the promised land for rest, but Jesus gives us eternal rest. And then last week we got into Hebrews chapter 5, how Jesus is greater than Levitical priesthood. And if you weren't with us last week, I encourage you to get a copy of it because it's such a huge deal. And what we're really going to start doing here, from really about chapter 7 on, we're going to sum up Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and show how Christ is greater than this Levitical priesthood that was set up. And last week, we're introduced to who the Levites were, who the priests were, the descendants of Aaron, etc. So tonight, we're going to kind of keep that flow going. But before we do that, the writer of Hebrews takes a little stop here. Because he's talking about going deeper. He's talking about wanting more of the Lord. Look at verse 11 back in chapter 5. Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. He says, listen, I want to tell you a lot of stuff. But you guys have quit listening. You guys have quit listening. Now anybody that has ever taught, be it maybe from a pulpit on a Sunday or a Sunday school, a small group, or maybe you teach for a living in the public school system, you get used to people not listening. You think I joke, and I'm not. Every Sunday, there's somebody who falls asleep. I see it. I notice it. You get used to that. And what happens here, the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, I know some of you, you're reading this, you're paying attention, but you're really not paying attention. You've become dull of hearing. And he says some pretty straightforward verses that we hit last week, which we remind ourselves of. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you, again, the first principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. See, the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, you guys should be going deeper. Instead of me explaining to you the basics of the faith, you should be out there explaining to other people the basics of the faith. Instead of me trying to disciple you to take you deeper in your walk with the Lord, you should be going out there and finding other people to disciple and take them deeper in their walk with the Lord. And this happens a lot in church. A lot in church, where you see somebody get saved, born again, love the Lord, and then they just flatline spiritually. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is, no, 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 no. You're supposed to take what you have learned now, go out and impact others. We've heard us say out here many times before, you want to be discipling somebody and being discipled by somebody at the same time. You want to take a younger believer and say, hey, I want to invest in you to see you go deeper in the Lord. And then at the same time, you want to find an older, mature believer and say, will you spend time with me and invest in me? And then this is how this discipleship progress is supposed to work. But what's happening back during the Bible times here with Hebrews was they didn't want to do it. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, you should be doing more. You should be teaching. You should be leading. And I just want to encourage you guys that are here tonight. Maybe the Lord's laid all that on your heart. Maybe it's time to go to the next level of teaching, leading, discipling. You've been fed. You know the truth. Now it's time to go out and impact others with that. See, then look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ... He says, let's let's get past the elementary principles. What are the elementary principles? 
First one, repentance from dead works, faith towards God. Baptisms, laying on hands, resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. He goes, I want to get past this, he says. It's not that this stuff's not important. He goes, but this is the basics of the faith. So you should know this, because I want to take you deeper. The question is, do you want to go deeper, he's saying. Verse 3, and this we will do if God permits, because now he gets pretty serious. Verse 4, for it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Did you catch how serious that passage was? The writer of Hebrews is saying here, it is impossible for somebody, once they go a little deeper into the Lord, and they choose to kind of back away, verse 6, if they fall away there, if they turn away, it's impossible for them to have forgiveness. It's impossible for them to be repentant. That's an amazing verse. And the problem is we only look at verses 4 through 6. The real answer to this is found in verses 7 through 12. Because what is he really talking about here? Look at verse 7. For the earth which drinks in the rain that it comes upon it, and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is recultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. Now just follow along the logic here. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is, listen, you're a field, and rain falls on you. Now what's going to grow? something's going to grow in your life. Now, what's the picture of the rain? I think the picture of the rain is the picture of God's Word. Because in Isaiah 55, the Bible makes it clear, God's Word doesn't return void. It's like a rain that falls. So when you hear God's Word being taught, and you hear that, something's going to grow in your life. Now, what's going to grow? Well, according to Matthew chapter 7, you can either produce good fruit, or you can produce bad fruit. So you're here tonight, you're hearing a teaching... The rain is falling on you. What's going to grow? Because it's all about growing. Dustin, can you put that slide up there real quick? I just want to share a couple quick verses with you. This concept of growing and going deeper is what the Lord lays on our heart. Look at 1 Timothy 4.15. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. There's supposed to be progress that I can look at you and you can look at me. We've been around each other for years to say, hey, man, I've seen you grow in the Lord. And that's pretty cool. You're supposed to meditate on that, chew on that. Now, the problem is when you hear that word meditate, we think of something negative. We think of meditate in the Eastern mindset of meditate, which means to empty yourself. The biblical concept of meditate is not to empty. It means to fill yourself. Focus on the scriptures. You, You put such an attention on God's word. That that's what you think about all day. Anytime there's a situation that arises, you stop and say, what would the Lord want me to do? How could I handle this? How could I represent the Lord? So I'm so focused on God's Word that my progress is evident to all. Not that I'm trying to show you, but it's just you see growth. And it goes with these other passages. Look at 1 Peter 2. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby... If indeed you have tasted, the Lord is gracious. For 2 Peter 3. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I've shared with you before the wall that we have down in our basement where we mark all of our kids' growths. There's visible change to see them physically grow. 
Now, we don't have that same type of marking for spiritual growth, but every now and then you see it. A situation arises at work, and you walk away from it. You didn't yell. You didn't scream. You didn't say things that would make people blush. You say, wow, six months ago I wouldn't have done that. There's a situation that rises at home. Your spouse does something you don't like. And you walk away and you say, you know what, I'm not going to let this get to us. We're not going to just have Satan bring this down. And you see spiritual growth. Or maybe it's one of those things where you just kind of stop and you say, gosh, Lord, there's just a heart to be in your word on a regular basis. I, I, you know, I can just shut that TV off for a while. Progress is evident. There's growth. Now, keep these verses in mind. Go back to what we just read in verse 12 of chapter 5. The writer of Hebrews is saying, that's what I expect from you guys. But I have to keep giving you a bottle. You don't want to grow. You don't want to go deeper. Something's going to grow in your life. Look at verses 7 and 8. What's going to grow in your life? Either thorns and briars or useful herbs. Keep your hand here. Go with me to Matthew 7. When that rain falls on your life, something's going to grow. Is it biblical progress like we're talking about? Is it going deeper? Matthew chapter 7. Start in verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come into you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly there are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Right here. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. You're going to produce fruit in your life. Somehow, some way. Verse 18, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. And the writer of Hebrews is saying the same thing. When the rain falls on you, what's going to grow in your life? This is what we're talking about. Go back now real quick to Hebrews 6. Because look at verse 9 now. But beloved... We are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. See, the writer of Hebrews says, you know what, but I'm confident. I'm confident that I'm going to see growth in you. Verse 10, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards His name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Until the end. The writer of Hebrews is saying, I want you to be diligent to the end. A lot of people start out good. They start out real good. Remember the parable of the sower and the seeds in Matthew 13. Four groups of seeds fall. One doesn't sprout, but the other three do. They start out good. But only one produces fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60, some 100-fold. I tell you right now, anytime we get together as a group of believers, there's going to be fruit. You'll see people start out good. But what are we really looking at? Verse 11, let's have hope until the end. Diligence until the end. Keep your hand here in Hebrews. Just jump back to chapter 3 real quick. This is an ongoing theme. Ongoing theme. Look at Hebrews 3 verse 6. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Look at verse 14 of Hebrews 3. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast. There's our word again, to the end. 1 John makes it very clear in chapter 2. You want to know if someone's really saved? 
At the finish line, they'll still be running the race for the Lord. That's how you know. It's not how they start. It's not how they run in the middle. It's the finish line that matters. And the writer of Hebrews right now is saying, listen, I want you guys to finish this race. I want you to be diligent to the end. I want you to bear fruit. I want you to keep moving forward. But you have to choose to be diligent. Look at verse 12. That you do not become sluggish. You do not become lazy. But imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's just be really honest with ourselves. Really honest. The typical believer is pretty sluggish and pretty lazy spiritually. We really are. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, that doesn't work anymore. God expects more out of us. We should be teaching. We should be leading. We should be diligent to the end. Are we willing to do that? That's the mindset he has in Hebrews 6. With that mindset now, we can go back and talk about verses 4 through 6. But does anybody have any quick questions, comments here about anything thus far? Being diligent to the end. Yes, Megan. Uh, it's verse 4, for it's impossible for those who are once enlightened. Jump down to verse 6, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Which we're going to come back to those passages, we are. Okay. Yes, no, I would not just leave you hanging there in I verses 4 through 6. I'm scared to death of that. And that's, now listen, Rankin brings up an absolutely wonderful point. Absolutely wonderful point. When people read verses 4 through 6, it is impossible for them who once enlightened, etc., if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. Sometimes fear comes out of reading that. Now, you've got to remember, what did Paul write in Timothy? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of strength, power, and a sound mind. So, therefore, it's not God's intent for this to strike fear into us. He wants us to stop and realize, what is he really talking about? And what he's really talking about is, starting in verse 12, going down to verse 12 of chapter 6, what he's talking about is, I want to see fruit in your lives that show that you are desiring to grow deeper, that you're going to stay focused to the end, that you are wise enough in the Lord to start training up other people. Fruit is being produced in your life. You're not just sitting there as a stagnant Christian. You know, we use this example a lot out here of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is dead. Why is the Dead Sea dead? If you go study it out, water flows into the Dead Sea, but no water flows out of the Dead Sea. So it becomes the stagnant type of water. So the salt level keeps going up. What a great spiritual picture. I know a lot of believers that there's a lot of stuff flowing in. They're here every Sunday. They're here every Wednesday. They're eating. They're feeding themselves spiritually. And they're becoming spiritually fat. But there's no outlet. There's no service. There's no ministry. There's no witnessing. There's no teaching. There's no discipling. So yes, this person is feeding and eating and becoming bigger spiritually. But they're also becoming dead because there's no outlet. You're supposed to take in. And what you take in, you give out. I don't know how many times I've read a devotional in the morning. And I find myself quoting that devotional to people I run into the day. The Lord fed me in the morning. And throughout the rest of the day, Lord, now I want to feed other people with what you've given me. And that's what Hebrews 6 is trying to tell us. Stay focused to the end. Produce good fruit. Don't become sluggish. Don't become lazy. Now, any quick other questions, comments here before we go on? Megan. That's okay. Yeah. 
That, that's absolutely right. There's a great passage where Paul says, your life is an open book, known and read by all. I was just texting with somebody today. They were going through a very difficult situation. The situation made them angry. The situation made them upset. The flesh was boiling. And I just texted them back. Remember, they were with a group of people. They were with their kids, actually. And I said, remember, your kids are watching you right now to see how you handle this. That's part of your witness. That's part of your witness. But Megan's right. Whatever you do, the normal, mundane things of life, I honestly believe everything is a ministry opportunity. Every cashier I run into, every waitress I run into, if I'm pumping gas, I look to my left or my right. Lord, is there an opportunity to talk to them? Everything we do is ministry. And when you look at the mindset of everything we do is ministry, all of a sudden it's like, yeah, Lord. Yeah. It's never about me. It's about you. Boy, that keeps you focused. You know, we're going through Philippians in our small groups. And the one small group I'm teaching over in Signet, we just did Philippians 3, where it talks about work out your salvation. And work out does not mean work for it, work to earn it, work to get it. No. When you work out, you're taking the existing muscles you already have, and you're making them stronger. Biceps don't become triceps. So when you are working out your salvation, you're taking the salvation you already have. You're saying, Lord, I want to make my walk stronger. The problem is with a lot of believers, they get saved... And they just become these lethargic, spiritual, lazy, sluggish messes. There's no desire to grow or go deeper. And all those passages that we put up, look at the theme here. Grow. Grow. Get off the bottle. Get rid of the baby bottle. Start going deeper in meat. And that's where you start been saying, okay, Lord, I get it now. This is what it means. And all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, Lord. Anybody else got anything here before I go on? David. Right. You're still a baby. You're still a child of God. Yeah. You know, that's a very good point. You know, just because you're a baby doesn't mean you're not saved. You're still a child of the Lord there. But like David was saying, there's going to be a realization when we stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. Where we stop and say, wow, Lord, I wanted to do more. I could have done more. I should have done more. And it's not this, you know, burden that you're going to carry for all of eternity. But I firmly do believe there's going to be a time where you stand before the Lord and you say, Lord... The reason I have these rewards are not for me to walk around for all of eternity. These rewards are for me to lay them down at your feet and say, Lord, this is what I did for you. And David brings up a very good point. There are baby Christians, and they are saved. Amen. But as any good father wants their child to grow and to develop into a fine young man or woman, the Lord wants us to grow and develop spiritually as well, too. Anybody else have anything here before I go on? Okay, now, with that context... Of, these are people that the Lord is saying, grow, go deeper, show me your fruit, show me your works. Remember the parable of the sower and the seed. Four groups of seed fell. One's by the wayside, no growth at all. One springs up quickly, but dies out quickly. One springs up, but gets choked out. And only one, only one produces fruit. The other three did not produce any fruit, but it looked good and it sounded good. Remember that in the back of your mind. Also remember our passage in 1 John chapter 2. They were not of us because they did not finish with us. Since they did not finish the race, it showed they weren't believers at the beginning, even though they looked good and sounded good. With that mindset now, 
Now let's look at verses 4 through 6. It is impossible for those who are once enlightened. What's it mean to be enlightened? You see the light. You see some truth. You have to make a decision. You live in this dark, sinful world, in this dark, sinful life, and somebody comes in and shares Christ with you. You see truth. You've been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift. You've tasted, some translations say, have experienced. Maybe you've came to church for a while. You got involved in a small group. You even cracked your Bible open one time and said, my life is such a mess. I'm going to give this a whirl. I'm going to experience this. Taste the heavenly gift. Become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Shared. You've been around the Holy Spirit moving and working. And you saw what the Holy Spirit can do. You've tasted the good word of God. The powers is of the age to come. So this is somebody who has their eyes to see truth. If they fall away... To renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. For those people that have been enlightened, tasted, etc., when they choose to fall away, when they choose to say, yeah, I don't want this, verse 6, it's impossible for them to come back. That's some pretty straightforward stuff. Now, does that mean you got saved, born again, you're walking with the Lord, All of a sudden, in your late 20s, your early 30s, you kind of fell away. You were gone for a decade. And all of a sudden, in your early 40s, like, you know, Lord, I'm sorry. I come back. And God says, yeah, I'm sorry. You you, you can't come back. Yeah, but Lord, I'm sorry. I I didn't mean to. I know I fell away. And and Lord, yeah, I, I gave you an opportunity. So you're completely out now. It's a one and done. Can you imagine if God was one and done? None of us would ever make it into heaven. Most of us can't get through five minutes without doing something stupid. So obviously it can't mean that. So what does it really mean? Well, I think you have to focus on that word impossible. Okay? Impossible. That's not a word that's used a whole awful lot in the Bible. So when something is impossible, you have to step back and say, Wow, Lord, what is going on that's so impossible that you have to say it's impossible? Okay, so when you think of the word impossible... Can you think of the other times where God used the word impossible? Remember Matthew 19, we just studied this a few weeks ago. It was the man, the rich young ruler. And he came, and he wanted to have a relationship with the Lord. And Jesus went through this long talk with him. All right, what do you need to do to get right with God? And I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. And remember the rich young man said, I've done all those things. And Jesus came back and said, well, you've still got one thing you're lacking. You need to go sell all your goods, give them to the poor, and therefore you have your heart right with me. And we talked about that in Matthew 19. This wasn't a works-based salvation. It was, I need your heart, is what Jesus was saying. So the rich young man went away sad because he had a lot of possessions. And if you remember correctly, the disciples looked at the Lord and said, Man, it's impossible. Remember Jesus' response? He goes, With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are what? Possible. Okay, now, follow the logic. It is impossible for you and for me... If we have enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, partakers, etc., it's impossible for us. If we fall away in verse 6, it's impossible for us to come back. What is he saying? You and I can't do it. We can't. It has to be through the Lord that we come back. It has to be. It's impossible for us to do it. Verse 6, we'll get in such a, a mess of slop and sin... It's impossible for us to pull ourselves out of it. Because if I could pull myself out of the slop and sin of this world, why did Jesus die on the cross for me? 
Now, I always think it's important that you find biblical examples to back this up. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about a couple examples. Let's talk about the most famous one, David and Bathsheba. We all know about the story of David and Bathsheba. David has an affair with Bathsheba. He kills, has Bathsheba's husband killed. He tries to cover it up. And then what happens is David goes for an unrepentant year of living with Bathsheba and covering up the, her husband's murder. What happened? Nathan the prophet came in and gave David this long story and condemned, rebuked David right in front of everybody. What did David do at that time? He repented. Why did David repent? David repented because the Lord moved in David's life to bring his sin to light, to show what he was doing was wrong. Would David have repented on his own flesh? Probably not. Dare we say no? It's impossible for us to do that. The Holy Spirit has to come get a hold of us. God used Nathan. Let's use another example. How about Peter? Peter sinned. Peter denied Christ three times, right? And what was Peter's great response then when he found the tomb empty? Peter said, I'm going to go back fishing. He quit. He gave up. Him going back fishing was not, you know what, I'm bored one day, guys. I'm just going to go fishing. He's saying, I am done being a disciple. I'm done. I, I'm, I, I failed so miserably. I'm going back to my old life. What got Peter's attention to bring him back? Jesus. It'd be impossible for Peter to come back on his own. It'd be impossible for David to come back on his own. It's impossible for them. But with God, all things are possible. Romans 3 makes it clear. There is no one who seeks after God, no, not one. There is no one who wants a relationship with the Lord. The only reason you have a relationship with Christ is because the Lord moved in your life, stirred your heart, and then you stopped and said, I want this. You did not come to Christ on your own good merits or your own good behavior in any way whatsoever. It is impossible for you to come to know Jesus on your own. It's impossible. It's the Holy Spirit that does it. The Holy Spirit moves and works. How does the Holy Spirit move and work? Oh, man. If every single one of us here tonight would say, let me tell you how I came to know Christ. You would all have a unique experience where the Holy Spirit moved in your life. I was just reading today in Isaiah 55, preparing this lesson, and it talked about how the Lord gives rain as a witness. Can you imagine being this person that lives out in the far reaches of the world? You've never heard about the gospel. You've never heard about Jesus. It rains. Water falls from the sky. You see a moon in heaven. You see stars. You see a sun. You have to, at that moment, stop and say, there's got to be something bigger than me. That's the Holy Spirit moving and working. So those are examples of people that it was impossible for them to come back, but the Lord in His grace and mercy worked in their life. Okay, let's give some examples of people that chose not to. See, okay, go back to verse 7 and 8. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. Peter, David, got their lives right. But if it bears thorns and briars, is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Let's give some examples of Peter. Excuse me. Let's give some examples of people where it was impossible for them. Greatest example is Pharaoh, back in the book of Exodus. It was impossible for him to be saved. Why? Because he hardened his heart. Right? He saw God move and work more than any of us ever have. He hardened his heart. He chose not to. What are some other examples? How about Esau? Jacob and Esau. Esau back in the Old Testament. Sought godly repentance with tears, the Bible says, but found none. Why? Because his heart wasn't right. Do you know how many Esau's I've had in my office at church? Bawling, 
Marriage falling apart. Life falling apart. Everything falling apart. Seeking repentance. Time will tell whether they mean it or not. I get asked a lot to write letters to the court. Saying, would you write a letter to the court on my behalf saying, you know, I'm coming to church. I want things to be different. I'm a new man. Would you write this letter to the court? And I'll say, yes, I will write a letter to the court. And I say, but this is what I'm going to tell them in the letter. I'm going to tell them, as long as you are willing to put energy and effort into it, we're willing to help you and minister to you. But if you're not willing to put energy and effort into it, then there's nothing we can do. Is that not the same with Esau? Oh, I want my life to be different. I sold my birthright. I feel awful about that. Alrighty, Esau, you feel so bad about that. Old Testament, why don't you go build an altar, sacrifice, get your heart right with the Lord, and get right with God. Yeah, I know, I don't really want to do that. Then your heart's not really wanting it. How about Judas? Isn't Judas maybe the best New Testament example of somebody who was enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, saw the Holy Spirit move and work? He walked with Jesus for three years. He saw more miracles than we could ever imagine. But it was impossible for him to have repentance. Why? Because he didn't want it. He didn't want it. So that's what that passage is saying. It is saying it is impossible for you. If you choose to reject the Lord, if you choose to go down the path of sin in verse 6 and fall away, it's impossible for you to come back. Because your heart doesn't want it. But when the Lord moves and works in your heart like David, like Peter, then there's an opportunity for you to come back because you can stop and say, Okay, Lord, I want this. Thank you for sending Nathan the prophet to me. Thank you for coming and eating breakfast with me by the sea like Jesus did with Peter. But for Pharaoh and Esau and Judas, they were given opportunities and it was impossible for them to come back because they chose not to want it. The same rain following them. They produced bad fruit. They did not produce good fruit. They were not diligent to the end. They did not stay focused. They didn't want it. So that's what it's talking about there when it talks about in verse 4 about it's impossible for those people to come back because they're not wanting it in any way whatsoever. Now, any quick questions, comments about this? Ryan. Uh, these verses are often used to say someone can be saved, fall away from the faith, and they're one done. But then you also got to think, on the other hand, the story of the and I love that story of the prodigal there in Luke 15. And, you know, I use that example a lot when I'm ever talking to parents or grandparents that have a grandchild or a child that's, you know, raised in a godly home, raised in the right way, and the child leaves. The prodigal comes back because he's the son. The son comes back. Back. The Bible says in Luke 15, what happened to the prodigal? He came to his senses. There came a moment where he stopped and said, This is not what I want. And like Ryan was saying, if you look at Luke 15, if you look at the prodigal son as a picture of a believer, and you look at the father as a picture of God, it's the only time you see God running in the Bible. He is so excited to have a relationship with us, he runs to us. That's a great picture. I know for me, there's been times in my Christian walk where I was not very strong in the Lord in any way whatsoever. You know, I don't know if you want to use the word falling away in verse 6, or if you want to use the idea of turning away, but I sure was not on fire for the Lord. I was sluggish, I was lazy, and I was in the world. But you know what? My Heavenly Father wanted me back, and there was repentance. He spoke to my heart. It's impossible for me to come back, but it's not impossible for God. And that's the beautiful passage about this. What else we got out there? Any other questions? Yeah, David. Yeah, 
That's the beauty of the Lord, and I think that's a parable that gets skipped over a lot. David made reference to leaving the 99 and going and looking for the one. I mean, there's a heart's desire as our Heavenly Father. He wants a relationship with this child. You know, you know, my kids that are out here, you know, right now we've got seven kids with us. Let's say that Dawn's getting ready to go, and it's like, you got everybody loaded up. She goes, I couldn't find one. I got six. What are you going to do? I'm just going to go home. They'll pop up eventually. You know you, 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 you stop what you're doing and you go look for them. Why? Because that's your kid. That's your kid. God's going to leave the 99 and come look for us. Why? Because we're his lamb. We're lost. Why are we lost? A lot of times because we do stupid stuff. God loves us. Anybody else? Tina. Isn't it basically comparable to Matthew 12, 31, where it says that the only Yeah, I, I think you can make a great case for that because you're right. There's only one sin in this Bible that is completely unforgivable. It's to reject Jesus Christ. And what is happening with these people is they have accountability. Once again, look at those words. Tasted, partaked, enlightened. They now have accountability. They can't sit there and say, well, no one ever told me. They've been told. What are they going to do with that information? I think you also see a little bit of the Matthew 7 in there. We already read the first part of Matthew 7 of good fruit and bad fruit. But look at the second part of Matthew 7. You don't need to turn there. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Wow. I never knew you. They were enlightened, they tasted, but they never had that relationship. And I think it goes back to our passage in 1 John chapter 2, where I keep making reference to that, that they were not with us at the end because they really weren't with us at the beginning. Listen, I've been walking with the Lord 23 years. I have seen a lot of believers start out the race, and then they disappear because time reveals where their heart really is. Megan. Mm-hmm. So did King Saul. What's that? But I never knew you. But I never knew you. You have to understand the word know in the Greek. There's numerous different meanings for the word know. And our English language does not do a very good job of that. You know, if you look at the idea of knowing somebody, pick somebody famous or something like that. George Washington. James, do you know George Washington? Yeah, I know him. No, I don't. <laughs> I mean, I... Know him, I know who you're referring to. So that's one definition. I know him. Okay, what about somebody I maybe went to school with and I haven't talked to in 20 years? Hey, do you remember this guy? Yeah, I know him. Okay, what about my kids? Oh, yeah, I know him. Okay, there's three different levels there of knowing. And our English language is very weak in that. If you look in the Greek, there's different words for different levels of knowing. And the most intimate form of knowing is this idea of a close personal relationship. And what you see here going on is Jesus saying, I never knew you. doesn't mean I don't know who you are. It doesn't mean I've never met you. It doesn't mean that maybe we even walked together. It means that we never knew each other in the form of a relationship for salvation. So when he says, I never knew you, I never knew you deeply. I never knew you personally. Anybody else got anything here before we go on? Okay. A lot of heavy stuff. 
That's what I love about Wednesday nights, is we get to get a chance to do some chewing on stuff. Now, we're going to stop right there at verse 12, because next week, if you look at verse 20, we finally get to talk about Melchizedek. And I know we started getting into Melchizedek a little bit back in chapter 5. We finally get full into him at the end of chapter 6 and in chapter 7, talking about how Jesus is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Okay, but what we have to focus on here tonight is just a couple quick points. And these are not points to condemn you. Not points to pick on you. Don't take it that way. Ask yourself spiritually. Are you still on the baby bottle? Are you ready for solid food? Because what the Lord says, he goes, I want you to grow. I want you to grow. Where are you at spiritually? I I keep going back to verse 12 of chapter 5. For this, by this time you ought to be teachers. This is not some cry or some announcement. Now we want more teachers in the back. I don't mean that. I'm saying, he's saying, I want you to be a spiritual leader. Be a spiritual example. You know what the problem is? Some people like being a Christian baby bottle. They don't have responsibility. It's easy. Time to go deeper. And what does it mean to go deeper? Well, let's go back to verses 9 through 12 at the end. Being diligent to the end. Verse 12. Not being sluggish. Not being lazy. Ask yourself that question. Are you a lazy Christian? I'm not saying that to pick again. I think this is stuff we have to honestly stop and say. Lord, am I? And then lastly, verses 7 and 8. The rain's going to fall on you. What are you going to do with that rain? That rain is either going to produce thorns and briars and be rejected and cursed. Or that rain is going to produce useful fruit for the Lord. You get to decide how it's going to go. Hebrews is a great book, it's a deep book, and it's something we really need to stop and pray on. Remember the biblical definition of meditate. It does not mean emptying yourself. It means filling yourself, focusing. It literally means to growl. I I love this definition. If you look up the word meditate in the original Greek, it means to growl like a lion over its prey. You're this idea of a lion over your food, and you're just growling over it. You're so excited. You're so focused on it. Can you imagine that being God's word? I am so focused on this. I'm meditating. I'm filling myself up with this. Man, that's where we want to be. Any final questions, comments here before we close with a word of prayer? All right, if you guys got anything you want to pray for, feel free to pop on up here when we get done afterwards. Hey, real quick, I want to let you know, and I know a lot of you know um, uh, Howard Spangler that uh, worships out here with us. Howard and Doris usually sit over there to my left. Um, For some of you may know or not know, Howard last week was diagnosed with a a terminal disease of leukemia. He has uh, chosen not to take any treatments. And so uh, we were over there talking to him today, and he is just saying, I'm going to finish my life and finish the race. And whatever the Lord has in store, he has in store. He has peace. He has joy. So does Doris. Great, great saints. Um, I think Howard is 92, I think is what he told me. Just keep the Spangler family in prayer. And Doris and Howard specifically as they finish the race on this earth. Um, but they've chosen not to go the route of treatments. And Howard has a peace about that. So keep the Spangler family in prayer. If you want to drop them a note of encouragement, love, and support. Great godly people. They've worshipped out with us here for, I lose track of time, probably about 10 years. And I just absolutely love them. We look at that example where it says in the Bible, be an example. How to endorse are a great example. They really are. So, hey, let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we just come to you now. Um, we lift up Howard and Doris. We love them.
Just absolutely love them. Encourage them. Uplift them as they run the race that you've set before them. And Lord, I just want to pray for us here tonight. Lord, gosh, I don't want to be lazy. We don't want to be sluggish, Lord. Forgive us. Help us to use the time wisely in all that we do and all that we say. Lord, as it rains on us, help us to produce fruit for you because that's what we want to do. And Lord, we want to invest in others. Give us the opportunities to do that. We thank you and we praise you. We lift this up in your name. Amen. Hey, don't forget shoeboxes this coming Sunday. That's when they're due back. Benefit for uh, Daniel Homley next Friday. Have the baked goods dropped off. You guys have a good week and God bless.